It's July 2nd, 2014, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. First, we'll cover some local science and tech stories. We'll talk about Facebook, but then we'll tell you how you can learn more about email marketing and WordPress development. And joining us today is Dean Levitt from Mad Mimi to tell us about what's new with contact management. And then we'll have Daryl Kim from Pacific New Media to tell us about his upcoming WordPress class. Finally, in the main segment, we'll talk to our friends from Culture App and Happy Hour Pal about how geolocation technology can make hardware and software better based on where you are. Have your questions and thoughts ready to call in or tweet, but first, the headlines. University of Hawaii researchers working with colleagues at the Berkeley Energy Lab announced yesterday that they've made a new breakthrough in the eternal quest to understand fire, specifically how combustion generates soot. Dirty emissions are one of the more harmful byproducts of combustion, while the creation of impure carbon particles is a well-known result. Until now, scientists only had theories as to which chemical bonds were broken and formed in the process. By using advanced light research equipment at the Department of Energy-backed laboratory, researchers were able to perform mass spectrography on gases immediately after combustion at high pressure and at temperatures of over 1,300 degrees Fahrenheit. They found that the most abundant kind of molecule produced by combustion was a carbon ring with a short acetylene tail on it called phenylacetylene. This direct observation allowed them to Firm one of two leading theories in how dirty emissions are created. The re- results could be relevant across several disciplines, from material science to astrochemistry, but future applications could impact daily human life. According to the research team, the fundamental chemistry discovered uh, could be used to find or design fuels that burn cleaner and don't produce as much soot. The team included Ralph Kaiser, professor of uh, physical chemistry over at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, and Dorian Parker, a UH postdoctoral fellow. Kaiser said in a statement, the next step will be to unravel the pathways to more complex systems. Now, when you look at something burning, obviously the thing that you see as smoke is usually what we refer to as maybe the soot. These particles, right? yes. And then uh, if you have enough uh, of that smoke, uh, let's say, contacting different uh, pieces of equipment or, or, or pipes or you know chimneys or whatever, all that black stuff that gets caught up in, in as a result of that uh, smoke yeah. is going to collect up as, as soot. And I love that in this day and age, we're still trying to figure out fire, still setting fire to things. I and know, I feel like a caveman. Happens. Yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. Of course, they did talk about astrochemistry because they also this would also help understand how the outflows, the gaseous outflows that come from stars turn into carbon-based matter in space. So mm-hmm. it's also, you know, has bigger implications than just dealing with pollution, but still interesting research for sure. On Kauai, lasers are being deployed to help protect endangered seabirds. The Kauai Island Utility Cooperative announced yesterday that it is experimenting with concentrated beams of light to warn birds away from power lines and poles. Endangered birds like the Newell's Shearwater and the Hawaiian Petrel are more abundant on Kauai, given the fact that the mongoose has not established a presence there. But the birds still face modern threats like bright lights and power lines. The Kauai Utility Save Our Shearwater program has been in place for years after legal action by environmental groups and the federal government. The latest strategy is being tested in cooperation with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the State Forestry Department. On Monday, KIUC began installing 30 lasers to create a light fence between six spans be, uh, between power poles adjacent to Kauai Coffee's fields in LA. The green beams of light are not hazardous to the eyes and are 
are tightly directed parallel to the ground. If this first test is successful in reducing fatal bird strikes, KIUC says the next phase will likely be along the so-called power line trail between Wailua and the North Shore. The hope is to avoid the considerable expense and disruption of relocating power lines underground. Carrie Koide, who oversees the utilities conservation efforts, said in a statement, The purpose of this research is to learn more about the birds and their patterns of activity so we can come up with ways to minimize potential hazards and do it in a cost-effective way. Well, and then, of course, you know, you can think of this, this as being, if you can't see the pole, the, the lines, the, the utility lines, at least the lasers for the birds are visible. Well, if they eliminate particulates, maybe soot in the air or <laughs> maybe partially eliminating the lines. But it's interesting. You know, it kind of reminds me of uh, maybe Mission Impossible and all the beams and, cr- you know, trying not to cross the beams. But here we're trying to protect uh, the seawater. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's an interesting project. Finally, uh, in the wider tech world, Facebook is facing significant scrutiny after it published the results of research that conducted uh, was conducted on unsuspecting users described as a study of emotional contagion. Facebook tweaked the news feeds of over 600,000 users in January of 2012. Some users saw more negative content for one week. Others saw more positive content. And the following week, those users did indeed post updates that were more negative and positive, respectively, than usual. While deemed a success, the way that Facebook conducted its research has, of course, set off alarm bells. Well, okay, so the, the, the big thing that really got... People's uh, people worked up is the fact that they actually published this in a in a, a journal that is uh, well respected, and they claim to be doing this for research. But if you were to really do a bona fide research effort, you have to inform the people, and this is what the, this informed consent is all about. Right, that you are part of a research project. And, and, and evidently, Facebook didn't do that. Right. They said that when people sign the terms, click the terms of use, when you use Facebook, you're agreeing to be basically a guinea pig for this research. A couple of problems with that. One, they didn't add the research component to the terms of use until after mm-hmm, they mm-hmm. conducted this study. And the other thing, of course, is that, that consent is one thing. Informed consent, knowing what the research is, is part of that. And frankly, you can see how some people might say, well, sure, advertisers might use A-B testing. They might try to create an unhappiness and a need in you for to buy a product. But here they're trying to evoke this, and they're trying to use the standards of actual academic research. They worked with Cornell University, with the University of uh, San Francisco, San Francisco uh, California at San Francisco. So because it's a peer-reviewed journal, they should have followed all of those protocols, and unfortunately they did And, didn't. you know, my, my academic friends, I mean, they say that you have to go through a, uh, an in- internal review board, mm-hmm. right? And an internal review board has very strict protocol upon on which you conduct your research. And if Facebook is putting themselves out there as a research organization, I mean, they, they didn't do yeah, that. Yeah, they have to follow those. So they cut a few corners, I think. And there's already talk in the UK of some legal action. I would imagine there's probably a class action suit. If you remember being really depressed I, in January you know, 2012. I, I do. Okay. Feel so it. maybe you should join that class action. My wife was like, well, Facebook always makes me mad. Now it makes sense. Well, okay, we'll follow that story It's an interesting one Of course, now joining us is Dean Levitt from Mad Mimi And he's here to tell us about the the business of contact management And of course, we'd love to hear more about Mad Mimi Welcome to the show, Dean Thank you, it's good to be here Now, we've heard about Mad Mimi for uh, a little bit I mean, you've been doing some of the the sort of speaking circuit And and I know HTDC has been helping to uh, get the word out But you know, I finally got to meet you, and of course, Mad Mimi, I, I use Mad Mimi, and, and I, I like it because it's so simple to use. I mean, but there is a, a big field of, of content, uh, contact management uh, choices that you have out there, right? Right. It's actually a very competitive industry, but what we've been able to do is carve 
a real niche out for ourselves by avoiding a lot of complexity. What we did is we said, okay, people like us, because I'm a simple guy, I'm not actually a tech guy myself, and and we realized that there has to be a market for people like me and and like my brother and I, who's my co-owner, and we realized that people don't need tons and tons of features that marketers need because a lot of marketing these days is done by small businesses. It's mm-hmm. done by micro businesses mm-hmm. where there's one person or two people on the entire team who have an hour now and then to maybe do marketing. So mm-hmm. by staying simple, by avoiding a lot of noise inside the app, we managed to actually carve out a really nice space for ourselves. And there are a lot of businesses. I mean, email is not a dead form in terms of engagement and reaching people and and, and driving business. Um, uh, where I work, we use a constant contact, very common, but I agree that it is very complex. And then you have other services like MailChimp, which might be a little less complex, but still for pretty big players. So I like the idea that Mad Mimi is aimed at just the mom and pop who just wants to reach their audience. But can you tell us a little bit about that that assumption that some people make that email is dead, that you should be sure. focusing on Facebook, it's still actually pretty effective to use email. Email is actually considerably more effective than Facebook and any other social media channels. Out of all marketing channels, email has the highest return on investment. Uh, it's something like $44 to every dollar spent. It's th- There's big differences between marketing via email, which lands on someone's phone, lands in their inbox, we all are really engaged with our inboxes. We read everything. Our goal is to get our inbox down to zero every single day, whereas Facebook is a constant stream. It's it's like it's a real difference between trying to catch a fish in a stream that's going by quite rapidly, which would be social media, and trying to catch a fish at the supermarket that's frozen already. <laughs> so, um, yeah, email is certainly not dead. In fact, social media, Facebook, Twitter, they all use email to grow their own businesses as well. Now, where did you come up with a name, Mad Mimi? Well, originally, it was going to be a service for electronic press kits for musicians, which my brother Gary and I both are. And Mimi was an acronym for Musicians Intuitive Marketing Interface. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So it's we never really launched a musician-specific service, but in the early days, that was that was our goal. I thought it was pretty catchy. I mean, I, I've seen MailChimp. I mean, MailChimp, sort of, you think about the MailChimp, and I've tried to use MailChimp. Of course, it was too complex for me, <laughs> my simple mind. Uh, but when I got to Mad Mimi, and of course, Mad Mimi was kind of a cool name, and I went into it, and boom, it was very easy to lay out a, a, a mail, um, let's say, sample, and get it sent out with some graphics and some body, and, and you know, it was great. The other thing that's attractive to me is that you have fl- free plans, and it takes... A, you need to build. You need to build your success to actually trigger the point where you need to pay for Mad Mimi. So, how does one get started? Um, well, the free plan was actually initially the idea was a, a trial, and and we've grown our free plan because it turns out that it's okay. We'd rather have people use our service. We'd rather have. We'd rather remove the barriers to getting started for smaller businesses who don't have a marketing budget. And all around, we've still been profitable. It's it's been interesting. As we've extended our free plan, we've not seen any dips in revenue. In fact, we've seen a consistent growth nonetheless. And it's actually just been a real joy to see a whole bunch of free accounts grow into paid accounts as they themselves grow. It's been really lovely. So where can someone go to try to use Mad Mimi in their businesses? Easy. Just go to madmimi.com and feel free. My Our support team is awesome. You have any questions, you can email me, dean at madmimi.com, or, or anyone on the team will we'll answer right away.
No, it's great, and we love the fact that you're here in Hawaii, Absolutely. launching this great, uh, great uh, service. Thank well, you. Thanks, thanks, Dean, for joining us. Uh, now, also joining us here in the studio is Daryl Kim from Pacific New Media, and he's here to tell us about something we talked a little bit last week uh, about working with WordPress. Welcome to the show, Daryl. Thanks, Ryan. So um, for those who might have missed that uh, healthy conversation about uh, open source tools and how they can be useful in building a presence on the web, uh, how prevalent is WordPress in your view in terms of uh, building websites for anything from, say, a political campaign to a restaurant? That's a great question. Um, I've been working in the web industry for uh, nearly 20 years now. And uh, from the beginnings of, you know, Netscape Navigator. And in the early days, it was all code monkeys and HTML and figuring out how to build websites from scratch. Mm-hmm. And since then, um, this concept of content management systems or systems that you can use to help you build, manage, and develop your sites um, have just continually grown. Um, and over the past, I would say, uh, six years or so, WordPress has just totally exploded on the scene. Um, currently, WordPress powers uh, nearly half of the top web 100 websites uh, in the world. So the top 100 trafficked websites are powered by WordPress right now. There's a total of 72 million websites out there on the Internet that are powered by WordPress. So it's really a phenomenon that's, you know, uh, across all countries and no borders. So so is it, uh, is it a, uh, a misrepresentation when they say blogging is dead? That, that's a common misperception about WordPress. When people think of WordPress, they initially think blog. blogging. Right. And uh, blogging, of course, from the early days of web logging and writing down a journal on the web, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, Ryan, one of the pioneers here in Hawaii. Yep. The diarist. Yes. Oh, <laughs> Famous in his own right. Um, but, you know, blogging really uh, evolved into uh, content publishing, really. And if you look at WordPress, what it really is is a... Um, content publishing platform, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and it's used to power uh, some of the, you know, obviously CNN, um, TED Talks. Um, there's just tons of sites, both corporate as well as mom and pops, as well as um, financial industry, education groups um, that are all using WordPress as their publishing platform. Now, the attraction to WordPress is that the software itself is free um, because it is supported by a open source community. Um, but there are some tricks and tweaks that you need to get it running on a server, for example. There's the fact that you could use it purely as a content management system and follow the relatively straightforward buttons on screen. But there are also people who want to get into that code and make it do things even more specific or unique to their needs. So, what is the range? What is the focus of this workshop that you're going to be um, teaching? Uh, this, the workshop that's on July 12th is called Intro to WordPress, and it does uh, start from the very beginning. So we do spend a little bit of time explaining what the platform is and, and how to install it uh, and explaining the two different variants of it, which is um, you know a self-hosted WordPress where you can download this open source software and uh, run it yourself or... Um, create a free blog on WordPress.com and use it there. Um, So we go through that, and we also talk about the different options on how do you publish content, whether it's textual, pictures, video. Um, And then we talk a little bit about extending WordPress because the real power in WordPress is that it's a framework, um, and it's extendable and extensible by plugin architecture. And there's currently over 19,000 different plugins that can make WordPress uh, jump or dance or do anything you want it to do. Um, if you can think of it, there's a plugin out there for it. So do you do uh, a sort of a quick introduction as to what 
uh, let's say widgets are available or what plugins are available and where to go search for those things and maybe perhaps how to determine which ones are the best ones to, to use? We talk a little bit because a, a lot of the people who attend this introductory course, um, they want to know about the capabilities. So we don't we highlight a few of the top plugins and, and the capabilities to just to kind of enlighten them as to the type of functionality that can be accomplished. Um, but due to the vast majority of different types of plugins, we don't really delve into it. We do show them how the plugin architecture works and uh, go through a couple of examples. Mm-hmm. It's a hands-on workshop, so mm-hmm. everyone's sitting in front of their computer, and, um, and they're able to play around with it. Well, tell me about the, the, the ideal student. I mean, it sounds like it could apply to just about anybody who wants to work with WordPress. My experience, as you had mentioned, is kind of starting more from the personal content on the web. But the applications that we talk about most frequently are business applications. Um, do you figure you will draw uh, wannabe writers? Do you think you're going to draw um, uh, uh, restaurant you know, operators? Uh, who are you looking for to photographers be Photographers or video yeah. guys. I mean, there's, all, there's a whole range of types of uh, people that are interested. Yes, and, and that's interesting. I've been teaching this class at PNM, uh, probably about six, seven years now. And across this span of six or seven years, I've seen the product grow. I've seen it expand. Um, but the the variety of people that come in is always, it always amazes me. Mm-hmm. So we have writers, photographers, everything you just described. Um, and that's kind of the, the, the strength of WordPress is that, is that it can be whatever you want it to be. And so we try to keep it to the functionality of WordPress and highlight how different segments can use the product. Well, Daryl, um, it sounds like a good program, something that is of interest. And as we got even questions about it on the air last week, surely something our listeners might be interested in. We just got a call about someone who said, well, quick, hurry, tell me how I can enroll in Daryl's class. So where can they find more information on this program? Great. If they go to outreach.uh. Outreach.hawaii.edu. Thank you. Slash PNM for Pacific New Media. Uh, there'll, there'll be a calendar there. They can just click on the workshop and there'll be a registration link. They can register right there. Um, this class on the 12th is the intro. There are two follow-up classes ah, for intermediate good. and extending. And those, the second one is, I believe, July 26th, and there's one in, in August. Fantastic. Sounds good. And we'll definitely put that up on our show notes later on this evening. And we want to thank uh, Dean and Daryl for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you very much. And that's what's been happening this week. We'll take a short uh, break. And when we return, we'll be joined by Alan Solidom and Brandon Bennett, also from Happy Hour Pal. Of course, Johnny Mac and Dan Bo from Culture will also be uh, talking to us about proximity service applications. Now that your phone can tell you where you are, what can your phone do with that information to make your life more interesting. We'd, of course, love your thoughts or questions as part of the conversation as well. You can give us a call at 941-3689 or reach us from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. And, of course, we're live and we're monitoring our Twitter accounts. You can tweet me at ByteMarks or at Hawaii, and this is ByteMarks Cafe. Midway through the Reagan years, the U.S. entered into the Compact of Free Association with the Federated States of Micronesia. Today, many people understand little about it or the Pacific Islander experience in Hawaii. Next in our series based on the book, The Value of Hawaii II, we'll talk with two contributors and a student who works with the Palolo Pipeline Project here to help Pacific Islanders. That's Thursday at 5 on Town Square. Have you ever found yourself interested in a local news report and then missed half of it because you got a phone call? Or maybe you had to park the car and turn the radio off. 
If you want to find out how that report ended, you can go to hawaiipublicradio.org and click on News. There you'll find links to individual reporters' stories, contributors' essays, neighbor island reports, and the talk show audio archives, the HPR website. It's just a click away. Welcome back to Bite Marsh Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And joining us today is Alan Solidum and Brandon Bennett. Of course, uh, Johnny Mack and Dan Bo, uh, Bo will also join us uh, later on. Uh, of course, Alan and Brandon formed the technical team, the, both they're the, the COO and the CTO, at Happy Hour Pal and are the first in Hawaii to introduce Apple's iBeacon technology in their application. And when their smartphone starts cooperating, Johnny will join us. He's the co-founder and CEO, and Dan is the chief technology officer over at Culture, and they'll join us by phone from Los Angeles. And what technology enables this proximity service, and why is it only now being introduced? We'd love to hear your questions and comments. And, of course, that number to call is 941-3689 on Oahu or from the neighbor islands at one eight seven seven nine four one three six eight nine. 941 Alan, Brandon, Johnny, and Dan, we want to welcome you all to Bite Marks Cafe. Hi, thanks for having us. Thank you very much. Well, great. So, you know, we're going to um, kind of start off just giving us, uh, you know, our, our, um, our listeners a, a sense of what is this proximity service we're talking about and what is kind of new about being able to kind of get information from sort of location-based or location-specific kinds of applications? Uh. So the iBeacon technology is, it's kind of like indoor GPS. Everyone's used to having geolocation on mm-hmm. um, with Android or iOS. Um, the beacons themselves are like having a micro version of GPS that can actually be deployed indoors. So you could be walking around a mall, you could be in your own home, um, and these beacons are able to know kind of where you are um, you can even have multiple beacons that are able to track somebody moving through an area as well. So there's all kinds of applications, but that's the easiest way to think of it. It's kind of like an indoor GPS. Mm-hmm. And iBeacons is kind of the popular name of it, uh, popularized in part by Apple's own use of this technology. There have been deployments at stadiums, in malls already, mm-hmm. um, but it's one of a number of technologies. I think it's based on Bluetooth, low energy. Um, a lot of people might know, oh, Bluetooth, I have that headset that I used to walk around and make people think I was crazy by talking to myself and Downtown, but it's not exactly the same. This new version of Bluetooth, it's called low energy for a reason. It's not going to drain your battery as fast as anything else. So, Alan, when you talk about a beacon, when you talk about the piece of hardware that is installed at a shopping center, what are we talking about? Well, we use uh, the S-Mode beacon, and that's just a small device that kind of, um, like as Brandon said, it's basically like an indoor GPS. Small device, and it actually lasts, our devices last for two years. So that's what's really good about this device. You can leave it in a place and not have to worry about maintaining it or the, the power dying. And for the user benefit, it's like your it won't drain your phone nearly as much as having uh, um, like your GPS on all mm-hmm. the time. Is there a way for someone to know that they're being in the they're in the presence of iBeaconness? I mean, are, how big are they? I mean, what are we talking about? Um, I actually have one in my pocket. Oh, we want to like, see <laughs> we want to see this uh, little beacon. So for the benefit of your listeners who can <laughs> toy, toy see the device I'm holding right now. I can wow, okay. It so it looks like a little piece of Silly Putty, almost an eraser, but kind of geometric. Sm- yeah, 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 maybe yeah, smaller yeah. than a little mochi or something. It, it yeah. looks kind of like one of those key-hiding rocks, but just uh-huh. a little bit smaller. Yeah. Certainly smaller. Yeah. So this would just be, what, at the cash register or somewhere could in be, a It could be over the door. Um, they also come in different colors, uh, and they actually ha- this device actually has something cool, which is Gecko, which allows it to stick on like a uh, like 
almost any sort of surface. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, what's cool about it is like the stickiness does wear off, but we found that if you just wash it with normal water and let it dry, it actually just works just as sticky. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, um, I, I hear that uh, Johnny Mack and, and Dan Bo are on the line, and they're calling in from uh, Los Angeles and, and uh, might be kind of near uh, uh, like a store that is playing Aloha. some music. Aloha, guys. How are you doing? <laughs> it's live hey, added sound. Aloha. Hey, Johnny. Well, so can you tell us, for your app, Culture, you're also using a kind of uh, location uh, hardware system, but it's slightly different, I understand, from iBeacon. What is your technology platform? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's based on the same kind of, uh, you know, same Bluetooth beacon technology that that we're talking about. Um, we kind of we look at beacons as a supplemental technology to geofencing, um, but the the beacons we use are actually from Qualcomm Labs for a <clears throat> from a software development kit called Gimbal. Uh, there are two models: one kind of the uh, the keychain size, and then there's another one um, that is a little bit bigger and has a larger range, up to 100 feet. So I'm I'm curious, uh, and and maybe uh, Dan, you can you can help us understand, and of course, um, you know, Alan and and Brandon, what what is it that uh, differentiates perhaps the you know the model that that you're holding, uh, Alan, versus Dan, what you're talking about with uh, with gimbal? Uh, maybe we will start with uh, uh, well, maybe start with Dan. Dan, can you kind of help us understand the differentiating qualities of gimbal versus let's say iBeacon? Yeah, sure. Alan can add on here too, but. Um, you know the way the way I see it is really it just it comes down to the software development kit that you're using to interact with it. Uh, they all have the same purpose of of basically broadcasting a unique identifier, and it it's all it all comes down to what your your web or mobile application can do with that unique signature, um, and it runs it you know ba- basically back to your application, and you decide what to do with that. Um, it's it's a very very basic recognition that there is someone present or there's a uh, a mobile user present, and uh, you know, in a response back in a in a particular way. So there's a number of different applications that can, it can be used for. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, it it comes down to iBeacon is it it interacts directly with the iOS uh, firmware, whereas opposed to uh, the gimbal is is more of a software development kit mm-hmm. uh, that that sits uh, at the hardware level as well. Any thoughts, Alan? Well, I, when we were in San Diego, um, I was actually visiting some startups in San Diego, and some of them were implementing the the gimbal technologies. So um, physically, there's definitely a difference in the form factor. Uh, the gimbal is much smaller. Uh, it's flatter, like uh, Dan was saying. It could probably fit in a keychain. Uh, I believe those run maybe for six months, but it's a lot easier to change out the, the batteries as well. Uh, there is probably a difference in terms of like the software development kit as well. Uh, but what I don't know is like how well one performs over the other. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if one's well, better. We'll find out. We'll be there'll be a showdown, I'm <laughs> sure. We're talking to Alan Solidum and Brandon Bennett from Happy Hour Pal and Johnny Mack and Dan Bo from Los Angeles and they're with Culture and we're talking about how this new hardware and software integration can help your apps and your your smartphones get smarter about where you are even when you cannot see the sky for GPS. If you've got a question, you can give us a call at 941-3689 on Oahu or from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Uh, you can reach us toll-free that way. We're also watching Twitter. Um, so, Brandon, tell me about the smartphone end of this. So now we've talked about these small devices that are you know quietly beeping away in the corner of a Chili's restaurant somewhere. Um but it has to talk to something, and that's your smartphone. And um, the culture folks mentioned that it's at the 
the, the very base hardware level of the iPhone. So is this, this is not something that someone necessarily needs to have their own special technology to take advantage of? So the advantages of, of Gimbal or of Estimote is that they both produce their own SDKs, their, their software development kits um, that you can install within your own application. And when you install those, it gives you the ability to basically listen to the identifiers produced by whichever type of beacon that you're using. So Estimote has its own chirp sound that the phones listen to if they have the SDK installed that the app listens to. Mm-hmm. And if a user has their Bluetooth turned on, all that's really happening is, um, Dan mentioned it, it's kind of like a geofence where there's a, a literal perimeter around the beacon itself. That perimeter can be anywhere from a few inches, a few feet, all the way up to about 200 feet, which is where ours go out to. Um, and all that's really happening is when a user with the application, with Bluetooth on, walks in proximity of the beacon, they basically walk across that line, and the app says, okay, I'm going to do something. What it does depends on what the programmer, you know, uh, the, the team d- decided to make it do. Mm-hmm. Um, on, on the other side of the coin, when the user leaves the perimeter, it can also do something as well. So it's basically listening for these regions and when people walk in and out of the region, the, the phone does something. Mm-hmm. I, I'm kind of curious about the range when you talk about that, you know, the different models, different strengths. And if you're talking about a very, let's say you're talking about a food court at a shopping center, these kiosks are pretty close to each other. And I can imagine almost a cacophony of beacons all beeping and trying to figure out uh, where specifically. I mean, how tight are we looking at? Um, Johnny, can you, I, I know later in the show, we do want to get into what your specific apps actually do. But again, focusing on the range of this hardware, uh, uh, Johnny, if you you could tell us how does it differentiate when you're in a very beacon-heavy environment? Well, it, it, I, I, I prefer to pivot the question more to how precisely you can analyze where a person is at sure, a venue. Sure. So I'll give you an example of a use would be maybe at a museum or an exhibit, or even we're in Nordstrom Rack right now, and we're in the men's department, and let's say each different exhibit or showcase, um, uh, the Nike showcase, uh, maybe the Reebok showcase has a beacon at it, you could actually analyze how long I've been looking at the Nike shoes versus how long I did not look at the, the Reebok shoes. Our, our main precision factors is how precisely and, and what you sense in that location. In terms of uh, being at a food court, which is your example, which could be massive or small, I would recommend using multiple beacons at different points because our interest in the beacons is a lot about the analytics. So, for example, we came to L.A. and today we had a meeting with the head of Twitter Music, and they're currently the head of Nielsen, Nielsen Music, and their main interest is analytics. And she was so interested in the beacon technology in terms of what type of analytics you could achieve from pinpointing where people are what their shopping habits are, how long they stay at a different exhibit, and, and the list could go on. Like, as far as the imagination goes, what type of analytics you could get from the beacon side. Absolutely. So I, I guess don't know if that answered your question or if it, if it went in the wrong no, that, way. No, answer that makes sense. Did some more, but you no. feel free to ask me. I can see that example. Like, if I, if I, let's say I pause by Reebok longer than at Nike, then that's helpful information. Or I'm at a movie theater and I stand in front of a specific poster longer than I stand in front of another. But, but in the case of, uh, let's say, close proximity kiosks, that may have, I don't know whether it be competing beacons or, or beacons that are meshed together. I mean, does the technology enable 
the communication that goes on between the beacon and the handset to differentiate between these tightly coupled sort of beacons in a in a you know like a, a close proximity uh, kiosk. Yeah, right? they do. Um, imagine a department store. Johnny mm-hmm. used the example of a department store. Um, if you had a beacon in every single aisle, you know they would be ten feet apart from mm-hmm, each other. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty large range. Um, they can go down to about eight inches. Um, the SMO beacons. I'm not sure about the the gimbal ones. I'm sure it's similar. Um, about eight inches, you can kind of differentiate, um, and that will allow you to to use you know many different use cases with something like that. Eight inches is pretty close. So, yeah, I will say for us though, we did have different use case because we ordered a, a bulk, so we had about 500 in our in our office, and trying to program each one, there's no physical like identifier on the outside of it to try to figure out which one you're talking to became a challenge for us, but we did solve that problem. But so, and I could see maybe there were some signal issues, but I mean, that's a use case of having 500 beacons in one location, and I don't think you're going to see that in a normal, mm. normal setting. Well, Dan, um, I wanted to ask you about what I think is a natural question, because I'll tell you, I love geolocation. I love GPS. I did geocaching. I love uh, Ingress on the Android platform. I love apps that tell me where I'm at without me having to do anything from Foursquare to Swarm. But when you talk about this stuff, there is a significant concern by everyday consumers about privacy. And like, well, if these beacons are telling my phone things and my phone are telling these apps things, are there things being told about me that I don't want someone to know? So how would you answer that kind of, I think, understandable uh, concern from somebody when these technologies are, are so widespread? That's a great question. Privacy is um, <clears throat> is actually one of the number one topics. When when Bluetooth beacon technology came out, and, and Qualcomm last released you know, the initial version of their of their uh, their SDK called Gimbal, right? It's it's uh, it's actually something that they put so much time into. Uh, they identified basically the standard privacy uh, policies in, in just about every app that's out there. Um, so their their SDK, and part of the reason we we went in the direction of Gimbal is that they've thought through that privacy policy so well that the SDK actually closes the doors to things that would be inappropriate, considered uh, socially inappropriate for today's age um, in determining where a person is. Um, there, there are definitely some, some uh, you know, implications from a privacy perspective that, that could be taken advantage of, but there are so many layers of privacy uh, policy concerns and, uh, and actually a lot of red tape even going through like the App Store uh, with iOS that will that will definitely um, relieve a lot of those concerns at a consumer level. There's really no um, the the SDK from Gimbal and also the you know, just the other layer of iOS and even the the layer that the the great layer of, of uh, firmware that Android has available is is uh, is enough to to relieve pretty much every concern uh, when it comes to. Uh, that kind of policy. So, 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 Dan. I mean, uh, that's that's interesting that you're saying. Uh, let's say Gimbal has already taken into consideration the um, uh, putting uh, some, uh, I guess, preventions of of certain information that might get communicated. But how does that get? How does the user know that that does is, exist? I mean, is that the responsibility of you as the app developer to communicate that or? You know, I guess the user isn't going to know that there are some of these uh, protections put in place. How how will they know? Yeah, and it all comes down to it's specific by different applications. So um, we're very forthright mm-hmm. in in our ability to uh, just just tell the consumer step by step as they're using the application 
what what the various data that they're entering into the application is going to be used for. Uh, so it really it is specific by company and by application, and it should be um, expressed very very obviously to the consumer uh, in, inside the application and as they're going through their onboarding. Brendan, yeah, what are, what are your thoughts on yeah, this? Yeah, that, that's absolutely correct. It is it is application specific. So, um, for example, if there were another company that deployed their beacons. If they don't have an, if a user does not have an app that listens to those beacons and that particular frequency, nothing, nothing will happen. So when and Dan was also talking about the notifications and the restrictions put in by Apple itself. When you pull up the phone, in order to access GPS in the first place, it tells you the device will tell the user, "Hey, this app would like to use your location. Is that okay?" And the user has the option of pressing either "Yes, it's okay" or "No, it's not." If they press "No, it's not." Um, it, it won't go through, just like location services won't go through. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. it's a similar it's a similar thing. Um, the beacons are listening to Bluetooth. So even though it's a Bluetooth frequency that's being listened to, Apple is well aware that the location services are what are actually being kind of in the use case. You know, it's a Bluetooth frequency, but it's telling you where you are, telling the person where you are. So, um, yeah, that, that's definitely a, a procedure put in by Apple that, that people will, will know it is there. Mm-hmm. Now, Alan, the other question that comes to my mind is this is relatively new. There are obviously different platforms, competing technologies and hardware manufacturers. And with any of these early days, the question comes up, how do we know we're backing the right horse? How forward compatible is this? What if uh, one platform isn't the one that wins out and now half of the beacons at Ala Moana are not being used by anyone? Is this something that is standardized and open or is it still pretty much uh, the Wild West out there? Sure. I'm, it's pretty standardized. Apple really backed um, beacon technology. I mean, building into the OS and actually in the WWDC. They, last year they talked about it heavily and there's uh, press releases about it again this year. And you see more and more applications coming out with people using beacons. So, what about the Android side? Uh, the Android side, like for us, uh, the Android side, it's also SMO also um, backs like uh, beacon technology. Uh, it's not as built into the EOS as it is as much on iOS, but we uh, it does have the ability to support that. As so, well. so when you refer to um, beacon and and specifically iBeacon is is, is an Apple specification. Um, is is that being sort of embraced as sort of the the industry standard? And I guess for for iOS, obviously it is. But then on the Android side, is it still sort of pretty much open for definition? So I think uh, the the general term would be like Bluetooth low energy. Mm-hmm. Um, but for Apple, it's it's branded as iBeacon or just Beacon Technology is really kind of like what everyone really talks about. So okay. any any concerns on that front uh, for you, Dan? Um, in, in terms of, I, I'm sorry, the stability, I, the, I guess the, the, the stability of the, uh, let's say, the standard of the technology and whether or not, you know, if we're putting all our investments into, let's say, iBeacon or, or Gimbal, I mean, is that something that might potentially change uh, as we move along? Gotcha, gotcha. No, Bluetooth is a very mature technology. Um, it's, it's definitely one that you want to build products on. It's, it's been no, it's on its, uh, this has got to be, you know, Bluetooth 4 came out and then Bluetooth Low Energy, um, you know, shortly thereafter. So, I mean, it, it's it's very well into its maturity. I don't see it going anywhere for quite a while. Just oh. the ability to pair between uh, devices, you know, a, a standard like this would take, 
uh, years to a decade mm-hmm. to even replicate or, or move. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So, um, you know, what we want to do is we want to kind of get into your relative, uh, your respective applications. So we'll take a short break, and when we continue, uh, we'll talk with Alan Solidum, Brandon Bennett, and Dan Bo and Johnny Mac about uh, sort of minimizing the fear of missing out. And, of course, finding happy hour. What widespread, uh, how widespread does an app uh, need to be? What other apps do you think could be useful here? We'd, of course, love to hear your comments at 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. You are listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Aloha, this is Sherry Bracken, inviting you to tune in Thursday evening at 6 for a special rebroadcast of a public forum recorded live in Hilo with U.S. Senate candidates Brian Schatz and Colleen Hanabusa. From the state's economy and job creation to better access to health care, you'll hear the candidates' views on issues of importance across the state and on Hawaii Island. The Senatorial Candidate Forum, Thursday, 6 p.m. on HPR1, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Hi, I'm Joe Ferraro, and I'm with Ferraro Choi & Associates. We're architects, and we underwrite KHPR program. I can only tell you, over the 25 years or so, people have stopped me on the street and said, thank you. You support public radio. You believe in the things that we believe in, and that's why we're selecting you as an architect. Now there's recognition, and it's recognition in a good way because it's with public radio. Hawaii Public Radio, celebrating partnership, building community. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I am Ryan Ozawa. And we're talking to Alan Sodom, Brandon Bennett, Dan Bowe, and Jan- Johnny Mack about the business model for proximity applications. And how do companies like yours keep up on this uh, leading edge? I guess as, as also, how do you sort of stay competitive with some of these large retail systems? Of course, you can give us a call here. The number is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. Uh, we want to go to a caller uh, who's been waiting, uh, Rich from Honolulu. Thanks for uh, joining us on Bite Marks Cafe. Yes. Hi. Hello. Yeah, I want to try, you know, you were asking a question. I haven't been paying complete attention, but about privacy concerns. Mm-hmm. Yes. A couple of weeks ago, NPR ran a, uh, it was over five parts where, uh, I can't remember his name, Hunter or Huns, allowed himself to be yeah. tracked. And they found all kinds of very scary stuff. I thought I heard your guests kind of minimize the privacy concerns. Uh, that guy's experience was quite scary when he allowed himself okay. to be tracked. Now, now um, if you can help us understand the, yeah. the, the story, when he said he allowed himself to be tracked, uh, what did he do uh, with no, respect to his phone or whatever? series on NPR in the morning. Uh, and uh, he allowed a company to... Ah, okay, actually... Tra- I, yeah, he allowed a company yes. to actually you track his through his devices and uh, all kinds of stuff. Sure. Was, was, you know, was, it was pretty scary. Mm-hmm. I understand. Yeah. Well, definitely, uh, thank you for your call. Okay. And um, I can articulate that story was someone who said, look, uh, how much information can a business find out or can people mm-hmm. find out about me? He let them attach something to his Wi-Fi router. He let them track his geolocation. He b- basically used all of those public data searches, so said, go ahead and research me and Basically, when they they said go and they went out and they came back and they said, okay, here's where you went and how long you spent there. Here's the websites you visited. And, you know, basically it was true that given the presence of certain technologies in your life and given the persistence of enough people, there is a lot of information that's available to you out there. So 
I would agree. You know, we don't want to minimize that uh, concern. Um, I think, Brandon, you made a fairly good case about why this technology is pretty opt-in. Like, for one, if you don't want uh, your cell phone company to know about you, maybe you shouldn't carry a smartphone. If you don't want Facebook to know anything about you, you shouldn't be on Facebook. So uh, how protected can someone be when they want to have an iPhone but they're scared of iBeacon? Well, one of the things that people can do is very easily turn off Bluetooth. Um, that's the easiest way anybody that does not want to have any beacon interaction um, to t- turn it off. They just turn off their Bluetooth capability. Um, in today's day and age, um, the wearable community is getting quite large. People are talking about Fitbit and all the other things mm-hmm. that are coming out. Those are all Bluetooth energy-based, too. Um, so there's all kinds of applications there. So it's all related. Um, but at the end of the day, it is opt-in. And the device and the applications, who, which are approved by Apple, you know, in our case, the iOS app that we have, um, it's, it's got to only be able to access things that the user has allowed the, the application to mm-hmm. access. So you can't get into someone's contacts or anything like that mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And uh, Dan, do you, uh, do you have any comment on, uh, let's say, the, the kind of information that might be transmitted uh, by communicating between the, you know, the, uh, the beacon and your device? Yeah, Brandon's right on. I mean, it is totally opt-in. Uh, the the important caveat to understand, I think, with the technology is that the technology. Um, I, I don't believe there's anything to be worried about. Um, it's it's more the the applications themselves. Um, if there is any concern, it's about the privacy policy within each of the applications that are taking advantage of the beacon. When you think about it, the beacon really it doesn't know anything about you. It's it's simply realizing that there is someone in the room. It, mm-hmm. it sees a unique device number of the phone, and and it tells the beacon that this person is present. That's it. The uh, all that all the information gathering, the data gathering about the about the individual is done in the web application. So, <clears throat> if if for example you logged in with Facebook or you logged in with Twitter uh, via the mobile application then it would have access to your Facebook profile or your Twitter profile. Or if you logged in with Google+, Plus, it would have your email, um, information like that. But uh, that's all. If, if you decide to log into an application or decide not to create an, an account with an application that is Bluetooth beacon enabled, then you really have nothing to worry about. There's right. nothing you can glean more than the unique identifier on your phone. Yeah, the beacon is more, it, it's not storing any information on it at all. Mm-hmm. It's more like um, Dan was saying, it's more like a speaker that's kind of transmitting something, an ID that only your phone can hear. And the only time that data is going to get transmitted is when you allow the app right. to transmit that information back to uh, a server that you've uh, deemed, like opted in for, for that service. Right, right. so, uh, well... Um, yeah, Brandon, I mean, yeah. One, just one last point. I mean, if you think about it in terms of the GPS functionality, th- these are just micro GPS capabilities. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if you think about the fact that GPS can watch you walk into a building, <laughs> the fact that the beacons there might get a slightly more, uh, a significantly more accurate, you know, positioning mm-hmm, on you. Mm-hmm. But your phone already knows that you're in the building if you've got GPS turned on, which most people's devices do. Right, mm-hmm. right. So, Some so, so, so Dan sort of brought up a, a good point where we want to uh, sort of get into. And, and that's the application, and it's kind of dependent on what your application actually does once it's in communication with the beacon and what you know what kind of information. So, tell us a little bit about Happy Hour Pal and 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 how you would perhaps uh, describe the the typical use case of using an iBeacon. So, so we've got two primary use cases. Um, we've got an automatic check-in capability. So, when a user visits a location and they um, dine there, 
will know and will automatically account them account for them and just check them in at the location. Um, that doesn't get posted anywhere. It doesn't get pushed out. Um, all the information is kept private. Um, the other thing that we have as far as a use case is reminding people about happy hour. When somebody walks by a location during happy hour, we'll send them a push. And this is, this is opt-in. They, they have the ability to obviously opt out of this. Um, it will send them a notification that says, hey, you're near this restaurant. There's happy hour for another you know, half an hour. Um, you should try the fries. You know, and, and it's got all the, all the information in there. Um, and then they can easily open it up and see what's in there. The point of that is to help people find out about happy hours that they didn't know about on their way to wherever they typically go throughout the day. And mm-hmm. it'll kind of help them become more aware of how they can save money while walking throughout a community. Well, certainly I'm, I would be interested in that, although I'd probably have to be more interested in alcohol to get the full benefit. <laughs> um, but, well, there's uh, your beer. There's true. Well, so happy, happy, happy Hour Pal as well as Culture were part of the Blue Startups program. Mm-hmm. We, in fact, at the, the demo day recently, Deolani, mm-hmm. we saw the, and you were all um, in San Francisco also doing it. So it's been exciting to watch this. Um, so, Dan, can you tell us about Culture and introduce our audience to what the benefit is and what the application is of these this hardware and location for your app? This is Johnny. I, I think I'm, oh, sure. I'm going to list on a couple different features that we have and I'll outline one that we're kind of focusing on right now. Sure. So we're, we're using the Beacon technology to empower both businesses and empower the users of the, uh, of the, the patron carrying the cell phone. So if we, if we go down the list, we have the guest list technology, um, the ability to show VIPs in line for an, a venue, um, real-time deal notifications, uh, loyalty programs, um, accountability, and then research and analytics. And one that we feel very strongly about is the security issue. So, so venues with lots of patrons or massive festivals, being able to know where patrons are, if someone is hurt or injured, you can actually allocate and find where they're at to, to send safety, to send someone to help them based on their location within the venue or being able to tell if someone's missing or if they're there. It's, it's, it, it helps with security concerns on, on such a level. And that's, that's what we're here for. Culture has two applications where Culture Pro for businesses is to empower venues doing events and activities mm. to become better suited to handling the patrons and offering the patrons better deals and security and safety concerns. And in terms of the users who turn on their cell phones and accept the Bluetooth beacon, um, empowering them to get better deals, better notifications, and knowing what's going on around them. So, so Johnny, uh, in the safety application use case, uh, how would the, the um, venue know that somebody perhaps is in distress or needs to be attended to? This, this runs uh, uh, entirely many different ways. Let's say, for example, I'll, I'll use a simple, there, there are multiple scenarios with safety because events, I don't know if you know my events or my background, especially festivals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, a parent calling to find out where their kid is. And so let's say we have a festival and we have like 6,000 kids in wedding while and a, a child is missing and the parent is wondering, did my kid enter this venue? Is he there? We could be like, we could look at the beacons and if they had their Bluetooth there, and we're like, yes, we know where they are, and we actually know that they're on slide number two, going down for better while. And if you wanted to go allocate and find them, we could easily find them with security because we know where they are based on their geolocation. 
I see. And so mm-hmm. culture, of course, being an app to find and discover events, um, a significant part of what you're focusing on, though, is the organizer side. So I can perhaps use the uh, beacon to uh, check people into a VIP section, for example. Exactly. But it follows you as the promoter of the promoter of the event to better deal with your patrons and offer them better value. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, um, so even, let's, let's say, because you do Wear Wednesdays, correct? Mm-hmm. Yes. So imagine that you know that you had a patron that attended Wet Wear Wednesdays five times, and you could, you could track that accountability. You would assume that that patron is a loyal follower of Wet Wear Wednesday, Wednesdays. So if you were giving out free poo-poos or, or free appetizer, or you wanted to let them in free to and make him VIP, as he reached to the door, this is the sixth time entering, you could provide him that value. Right, something more than uh, maybe requiring a four-square check-in for them to be mayor to get their free bucket of uh, chips. I can certainly mm-hmm, understand mm-hmm. that. Well, of course, key to these technologies is adoption by businesses, and that's what I know both of your startups have been doing. Alan, um, you have done some deployments in Honolulu as well as on the West Coast. How is that going, and how is it being received by the actual businesses? It's going very well. Our team has been working really hard in San Diego. Um, they're back in the office and planning another trip back out to San Diego because it went that well. Uh, we're currently in about 20 or so, over 20, and we're expanding further. We're only there for a week, and um, we're able to, to get that much interest going in that limited amount of time. So so the venues that you're approaching are primarily um, restaurants and, and bars that have sort of a happy hour offering that they, mm-hmm. can, they can provide. Uh, are you... Are you um, Seeing anybody else in that market space, or uh, you know, what do you see as being perhaps the competition uh, in this field? Uh, I'm not sure. As we walked around, I actually had because as we were deploying beacons, I had to make sure I was talking to the right one. I really didn't see any other beacons around, mm. so it's hard to say um, what's going on there. But like I did say, uh, we I happened to be there during San Diego Startup Week. And uh, there was another team doing stuff with Beacon Technology, but they were doing it as a scavenger hunt mm-hmm. uh, using Beacon, uh, the gimbal technology. Now, Brandon, Dan, oh, oh. sorry, uh, Dan or Johnny, um, how is your deployment going, or or how have you been uh, being received as you met with venues? Right now, we're we're at a, a research and development type of phase, and uh, so we we actually have the two models working at a couple different places, uh, just just in test mode. Um, it, it's a, it's an interesting question because it does have a. There are a lot of applications for this technology at just about any any physical location, and in fact, I'm, I'm actually seeing a trend where uh, where as new new venues are being uh, constructed or new new commercial areas are being brought in, they actually are building in uh, Bluetooth beacons to the actual infrastructure mm-hmm. um, just to prepare. Um, for for technology that will will take advantage of it, uh, so there's there's actually you know an interesting caveat is that as as this infrastructure uh, moves across the country and it and it is there is a motivation to to make that happen, um, both from Apple and uh, Qualcomm Labs perspective, but a, a single beacon could serve uh, very different purposes for a number of different web applications. So again, it's it's all about. I think in the future about about having these these things in a in a very in very prevalent commercial areas, um, all with with different applications. Cool. Now, um, uh, Brandon, I I wanted to ask you with respect to Happy Hour Pal, uh, with the with your staff going out and and getting it implemented in various restaurants and and bars, 
what is it that will uniquely position your solution as opposed to somebody else coming in and say, coming in and saying, "Hey, I've got a you know I've got a beacon solution. Uh, can you you know can you partner up with us?" Uh, which is another perhaps restaurant application or another uh, kind of application that might be similar to yours. I mean, do they now all have to implement their own unique beacons or like uh, Johnny was saying, is it something that is a shared kind of infrastructure, or or do you want to create it in such a way that you're uniquely positioned and dominant in that in that space? So there's a, there are a couple of ways to to approach that. Um, beacons are something that people know about. The world is aware that these exist, and they're being deployed in all kinds of different sectors. Um, and as Johnny and, and Dan, everyone has kind of talked about how many different areas that can can be affected by this. Everything from events to stadiums and what have you. Um, in the restaurant and bar world, um, there are a, vari- a variety of different approaches as well. Um, one of them would be to have a, a beacon program where you can share the information with other applications. So if, if somebody wanted to have a beacon-related app in restaurants, we could produce an API that would allow them to talk to our beacons. Mm-hmm, we can have mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Um, it's you know it's it's whatever the person creates and and that's what that's what's amazing about this technology it's whatever you can think of with this you you can build it um the beacons themselves um do have to be purchased um the the price ranges depending on which ones you you go after and all the functionality changes with that as well um we made our decision to go with estimote um they're a y combinator backed company um and uh, and we love them so far so yeah. is there a is there a specific business in Hawaii where someone could go and maybe ogle one of these uh beacons cuz they are kind of interesting they're small they're like little objects but i'd imagine they're usually put out of sight is there a place where it's not well we're a place in probably about 40 right now in Hawaii hmm. and we're planning to go to all 100 we we're targeting 100 locations here in Hawaii mm-hmm. all right well uh if people want to try out these apps they can uh, try Happy Hour Pal to find happy hours at uh, happyhourpal.com. Or if you want to find interesting events around where you are, you can download the Culture app at C-U-L-T-U-R dot I-O. And, of course, Alan Saladam and Brandon Bennett head up the technical team over at Happy Hour Pal. And, of course, Johnny Mack and Dan Bo are uh, CEO and CTO, respectively, of Culture. We want to thank you all for joining us today. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you very much. And, and thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Please join us next week when we'll talk about crowdsourcing image detection of invasive species. And if you missed any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on BiteMarksCafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, email us at feedback at BiteMarksCafe.org. Of course, you can also find us on Twitter. I'm at BiteMarks. And I'm at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chung, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Kozlovich. And we leave you with our song pick of the week. Here's homage to Halt and Catch Fire in a band called Big Black Delta and their song Capsize. See you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe. Just right.